passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, everybody. It's John Pollock and Wei Ting here with you on Friday, May the 28th. Hello, Wei. What's going on, John? How you doing? You and I are just, we're just going to talk every day, multiple times a day. That's what we do. And we send it out there for the world to see if it registers for them or not. I I can get used to this from time to time, you know, if it means... Um you know spreading the spreading the the wealth uh, not not being up say. till not being up till 3 a.m. tonight yes i could definitely uh prefer this method as we break things up because we've got a double header tonight way it's the first ever rewind a dina down tonight exclusively for cafe patrons where we'll not just review smackdown but also friday night dynamite that's right we've got smackdown at 8 dynamite at 10 Rewind and Dine it Down, Midnight Eastern, all members at postwrestlingcafe.com will have live access to that show that we will go through, take some calls, uh, but we are not going to go through all the news because that's what we're here for today, and we have a lot to discuss, as we do most days, Way. and today's big story comes from WWE on the heels of a report that came out on Thursday uh, from Andrew Zarian of the Mat Men podcast. The date for SummerSlam is now official. Saturday, yes, Saturday, August the 21st, taking place from a summer destination location. I don't know if you could be more vague than that. Sports Business Journal has uh, listed several potential sites for it. And of course, we have seen the other reporting way that uh, Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas uh, appears to be one that was uh, the front runner, um, at least at some point, which is interesting because... That Saturday date in Las Vegas is also going to feature a big fight between Manny Pacquiao and Errol Spence Jr. Uh, but in addition to that, WWE also announced additional cities and dates for their 25-city tour. Uh, dates listed from July 24th all the way up until Labor Day on September the 6th for Raw, SmackDown, and a select number of super shows that I would imagine are just combined house shows that they're going to be going to. So... SummerSlam will be on Saturday, August 21st. Uh, the night prior, they'll be in Phoenix for uh, SmackDown. And the next day, they'll be in Denver, Colorado. So the announcement of SummerSlam's location will be announced on the pre-race of the Belmont Stakes on June the 5th. Meaning that wrestling fans now have a stake in the race. A stake oh. in the Belmonts to tune in to a horse race to find out. Who is going to host SummerSlam? You know, I don't exactly know what the horse racing slash uh, wrestling, you know, Venn diagram sort of um, how how large that that little crossover might be. But um, 
I'm sure in some way a wrestling fan will find out. And you know what? If the if you're the WWE, um, from what I gather, the Belmont Stakes is a pretty popular event. Uh, it's a way to try to you know uh, just get the word out to an audience that might not typically be aware of this type of thing. So why not? Why not? And as far as this tour goes, it looks incredibly ambitious. It's a lot of uh, four day runs for much of the talent. Uh, I suppose three day for most of them, and then you know. Um, just depending on whether or not they're on Raw or Smack or, 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 or SmackDown, but uh, a lot of cities that will be getting wrestling for the first time in a long, long time. Do you think this is a manageable like this schedule could be kind of your your future makeup in that it's not full of house shows every weekend. They're select markets and combining the the rosters together for those house shows that make them a little more important than just doing a brand specific one but this at least these 25 cities to me it it kind of is a a middle ground between the old schedule and what they're presently doing of strictly television well what is the difference what would, what did they used to do i mean before it was you know raw would do friday saturday sunday monday every week and SmackDown would be Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the occasional uh, Monday house show. So overall it's like, it's not, it's not full on house shows um, for uh, and separate tours as well for them. I guess it remains to be seen how much they want to even commit to the house, house show deal. Um, but in this case, I think with all the pent up demand, you would imagine for live, um, you know, any, anything at this point, I definitely think it's worth doing something like this, trying to hit up as many of these cities as you can. And, uh, you know, really for the talent, I I don't know if you'll get much complaint at this point, you know, after being uh, over a year off of the road. What do you think about SummerSlam choosing to be on a Saturday? I find it really curious. You know, I imagine it would have something to do with the availability of some of these venues, which, I mean, that in itself I find a little surprising considering I, I, I still wonder how many... I suppose you have a lot of like uh, things that are are running back up right now, you know, especially by the time August comes around with baseball and everything. But you know, with the the rumors being the front runner being uh, Las Vegas, of all the places that you could do a show, uh, picking the same place as a Manny Pacquiao fight, I definitely find that curious. So either it it might not be Las Vegas, or they are not that concerned. Yeah, I mean, it's to me, it was already. Um surprising that they would pick the same weekend in Las Vegas, but the same night is just, it's a very strange one, which I mean, we will see what the ultimate location is. Like I I can't say a hundred percent it's Allegiant stadium, but certainly there are those reports out there that that is the venue. I think most are expecting it to be in. Um, It is a summer location, John, a summer destination location. Yeah. I would love to know what the, what, what is considered a summer destination location and what is not. I would say given that it was snowing earlier today, Toronto was out of the running. I would probably say so. And, um, I think we can, you know, rule out anywhere in the Northeast, uh, North, anywhere North of, um, in in the United States, I, I think you can rule out. So it would have to be somewhere South. Now, what else? Like you wouldn't consider anywhere in Texas to be a summer destination location. Although I'm sure it's really nice in the summer, but I imagine it'd be like a, you know, like a tourist town, right? So Vegas would be one of those, um, somewhere in Florida. It is technically a, a, a summer uh, destination. Yes. Um, in just in terms of 
running a stadium for SummerSlam. I mean, we've we've seen like a, a limited uh, result so far of the Texas shows that have gone on sale uh, for July. Um, nothing immediately selling out uh, in these arenas, but they haven't been off to poor starts either. For a big event like SummerSlam, if you have a big main event, if you have you know anyone coming back, like what is your confidence level that they can sell tickets at a stadium level? Much of that, I think it would depend on the match and, and you know, the, the amount of star power that gets added to uh, an event like this. Um, to me, you know, the biggest comparable at this point would be WrestleMania, wouldn't it? But, you know, even now compared to August or, or now compared to uh, April, it, it feels like it's a very different kind of world. So um, I think they'll do decently well. Um, just for... Uh, to note here, Sports Business Journal on Thursday, they had noted that uh, among the sites in the mix uh, for SummerSlam would include Hard Rock Stadium in Miami, SoFi Stadium, which was going to host uh, WrestleMania uh, in Los Angeles, Houston's Energy Stadium, Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, and Nissan Stadium in Nashville, Tennessee. So looking at all, big venues. All summer destinations. That is true. Hard Rock Stadium, uh, which just had a Canelo fight and is about to get Mayweather and Logan Paul. Could you add the trifecta of SummerSlam? Oh, wow. Yeah, definitely. Huge. Let's be honest. The real reason they're choosing this date is to screw with you and me. Isn't that correct? Probably, yeah. Um, I'm I'm scheduled to um, be a groomsman at a friend's wedding that night. So unless that wedding date changes, I I might not be available. Boy, they're they're really uh, sticking it to us. Uh, Let's move on to another story that, I mean, is obviously going to get a lot of discussion. And it's really hard to gather what this will become uh, because it could be nothing. It could be gigantic. But from uh, today's edition of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, it reads, In what could end up being among the biggest wrestling stories of the year or a non-story, depending on the end result, Nick Khan has been in talks with New Japan Pro Wrestling about WWE being the exclusive American partner with the promotion. Right now, New Japan has been working with AEW and Impact and has a relationship with CMLL and Ring of Honor. But things have slowed down with those companies since COVID. Obviously, there are a million questions regarding such a deal if it was to happen, and there are no indications where talks are at past a date back to late March or early April, but it would include WWE sending talent and WWE top stars being allowed to work in New Japan if talks go anywhere. Uh, and then there's more uh, on top of that, but those are the the keynotes in the report. So, I mean, way there are people already making their dream cards online. I think it's kind of getting ahead of yourself that, you know, what are the stages of these talks? And the fact that if they're going back to March, early April, the fact is New Japan has been working with, with other companies. And if this does grow into something, that's huge. Um but it also could be something where, I mean, this is very unlike WWE, but kind of goes to show you that Nick Khan has a very different vision and it shows you the adaptability that a Vince McMahon has that I would liken to Vince McMahon is always going to be in the driver's seat with his hand on the wheel, but it feels like Nick Khan is the GPS of this company. Oh, I like that analogy. There you go. I'm trademarking that. The on-star of the WWE, Nick Khan. Okay, interesting. Well... I, I, it is certainly a fascinating one that I think, you know, um, has fans either salivating or dreading if it does, in fact, come true. 
Um, I think from a strategic perspective, you definitely see uh, the reasoning behind it. And I, I think, you know, beyond perhaps, you know, if you're Nikon wanting to create that more of that maybe sports-like atmosphere attached to the WWE product, of course, it's also cutting off New Japan Pro Wrestling's ties to its other um, partnerships, uh, primarily AEW. So, um, you know, New Japan right now, I mean, these talks from what seems to be, um, I, you know, it seems what, what seems to be discussed have, have been taking place for a little bit now. But nonetheless, you know, New Japan, I believe, is in a bit of a vulnerable state right now. So you do wonder how much of that might play into uh, further discussions. Uh, certainly, it's a company that's wanted to increase their foothold in, in the U.S. And obviously, over the past year and a half, that's, mm, that's stalled big time. Major. Um, but, you know, is a partnership with the WWE going to help that? Or is it them basically giving that up and saying, hey, we know we're not going to be able to compete with you. But at the same time, we want to be able to make money in the U.S. And with your help, we can do that. Of course, the other question is, if you're a WWE fan um, or if you're a, not a WWE fan and somebody who's just simply watched, you know, the way that they've been able to integrate their past partnerships and um, with, with other companies around the world, you're probably looking at this and thinking this is not going to be good for new Japan pro wrestling. This is not going to be good for somebody like a, cause cause it Okada or whoever, like people are joking. Oh, Okada on two five live. People are making jokes about Kenta <laughs> who just, who's just like, you know, spent years trying to get away from that whole thing. And now might find himself back into the system. I mean, of course, if you know, down the road, if all this happens, um, their track record of, integrating some of this you know the, these talents is certainly questionable and you would wonder even if something like this were to occur how how big of an extent this relationship would be would it simply be something that was relatively hands-off and separate from raw and smackdown like you might see you know with you know past integrations of new japan talent in nxt or or you know um nxt uk or something like that um what do you think john i mean when it comes to like, I think it's impossible to answer any of those questions. I look at it just strictly from the side of, you know, what is in it for each side. And I'd be very curious who initiated these meetings uh, because, you know, New Japan, you would think just off off the hop, if, if WWE wanted to sit down with you, you would be more than rushing towards taking a seat at that table and taking that meeting. I think that is exponentially so. Over this past year, where you can see that New Japan, um, I, I don't know if needing a needing a life raft is an appropriate, uh, you know, metaphor, but you know the they GPS. are they they are they are they are lost, and a GPS could help them get back to the road, get back to the highway of their destination. And if you're WWE, yes, there is certainly the incentive of having an exclusive relationship with New Japan that is not funneling talent to your competitors. There is, for New Japan, I mean, the idea of, if a Nick Khan could say, we we would distribute your content and take a healthy percentage of whatever deal we get, um, New Japan getting a percentage of an American TV deal, of which, I mean, there would be no one more uh, impactful than a Nick Khan that says, I can sell your product in the U.S., that becomes very advantageous when you hear stories of New Japan talent, probably, uh, you know, of the unrest of a lot of questions. 
you hear a story like this, does this give you a bit of a reprieve that let's get through this? And if there's something like this at the end of the tunnel, for some, they may look at this as bad. I think a lot of others, they would be looking at this as at the very least some financial stability if there is a clear-cut relationship in any form with WWE. So I I would say New Japan, um, they are, I think they would very much be entertaining this. And with WWE, I I don't think they're, I don't think we're getting to this point where um, this story is out there and if if they did not want to be pursuing this in in the sense that I think that WWE, if this had been New Japan knocking on their door and they have a courtesy meeting and nothing happens of this, I, I don't think this is much of anything. There are other elements at play here too, you know, of course, with like certain rumors of uh, somebody like a Daniel Bryan um, wanting to test the water, water, so to speak. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of talents in WWE who are creatively unfulfilled with the style of programming, or maybe simply they just don't have a spot for them right now that might be creatively fulfilled with some sort of working relationship. But I feel because we've seen WWE's relationships with, you know, progress or like, I think that's the biggest concern that maybe a pessimist might have about something like this is to see the WWE possibly reduce a New Japan Pro Wrestling to the status of a progress. You know, just another thing on the WWE Network or or on Peacock or something. I don't think that'll be the case. I feel like New Japan is higher profile than than either of those. those, uh, I really could not see this being a case where WWE just like outright buys or overtakes New Japan completely. Mm -hmm. I just think like that's not going to yeah. be in their wheelhouse. Like we we heard the example of Nick Khan when he talked about Mexico, that you have these existing uh, leaders in that company in CMLL and AAA. We are not looking to buy a company. He suggested more so like building up our own brand. But again, it like this could simply be, there is a reason to have a relationship with this company. We can send some of our talent over there back and forth uh, a guy like Daniel Bryan, it's like that certainly comes to mind immediately because, you know, he brought this very idea up and also qualified it. This was only about a month ago before the news of his contract came out that he was pushing for something like this, but wasn't quite it didn't sound very confident that it was going in in that direction. So I began there, there's so many questions to this, that a story like this, it's it's going to breed so much speculation Um and I, I think Dave outlined it pretty well. This could be one of the biggest stories of the year. It could also end up being nothing. And six months from now, we look back and say, yeah, remember that week when WWE and New Japan was being, uh, everyone was fantasy booking. One last thing is, you know, what do you think this says about WWE and Triple H's efforts for global localization? I think that it's, um, I still feel like that is going to be a major priority. This would, uh, this would, I guess with this one, it's like, I see this being a different deal than like what they're trying to cultivate in India, which I think moving forward, I think they want to have a performance center in India and really build up their own brand from the ground up. I would not look at Japan as a territory where I would want to start from scratch as, as a foreign owned company, I mean, we, we saw the difficulties of the UFC trying to to, to get into Japan, um, you know, years ago. So I think that that would be a large, like when, where you have pro wrestling so ingrained in the DNA of that country, I think it becomes that much tougher for WWE to start from scratch that 
this would be a better inroads into Japan of kind of talent exchanges, an exclusive working relationship, and you have the fact that it can it can siphon your talent, uh, or at least the New Japan talent, in a one-way direction with WWE, and you're not sending them to other other companies. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Maybe we'll hear more about it soon. Uh, continuing on, um, Japan has announced has announced uh, an extension of its state of emergency until at least June 20th. This will include uh, multiple prefectures, including Tokyo and Osaka. As of now, uh, New Japan nor any other companies that I've seen have made any announcements about potential uh, postponements or cancellations of shows. We know that New Japan is supposed to run three events in Tokyo next week with two at Korkun Hall, one at uh, Oda Ward City Gymnasium. And then the bigger questions are next weekend when you've got Dominion in Osaka and the Cyber Fight Festival at the Saitama Super Arena that, again, we have no card for Dominion. And that would be one that I think you have to be looking at with at minimum, a question mark attached to it. And I, I think you have to make an announcement one way or another. Either we need a card or this sh- this show is off the books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, again, just seems to be a, a succession of bad news, unfortunately, for New Japan Pro Wrestling. But I'm sure this was one that they might have been expecting. Um, and the fact there were no announcements, I think they had to be expecting this state of emergency. It was extended to Monday. And I don't think anyone looking at the numbers and where everything is. I don't think anyone expected that they were just going to lift that state of emergency on Monday. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And at this point you really just want have to wonder, you know, uh, how desperate is this company to have to, to, to run shows in front of like 200 people right now? Um, how is this necessarily worthwhile for them when they're doing these shows off of such a limited roster? Um, is it better off to just, you know, just, take the whole summer off or however long you have to until this whole thing sees itself through. Uh, it's, it just seems to be a bad state for them right now. And uh, tonight for Dynamite, what we've got uh, on the SmackDown side, we know that the Usos are taking on the Street Profits. And then on Dynamite, we've got Miro versus Dante Martin for the TNT Championship, Hangman Page against Joey Janela, Evil Uno and Stu Grayson against Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page, Darby Allen against Cesar Bononi, the weigh-in between Cody Rhodes and Anthony Agogo, a celebration of the inner circle hosted by Eric Bischoff, Hikaru Shida's one-year celebration as women's champion, a lot of celebrations tonight, Jade Cargill's open challenge, and Orange Cassidy responds to Kenny Omega's offer. There's quite a lot on this Dynamite card. I wouldn't say anything that is jumping off the page at you either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, really feels like last week was sort of like their big go home show ahead of Double or Nothing. Um, but this this week, you know, because we're we're we're, we're AEW reviewers and because we're AEW fans, we'll we'll be watching everything. But it, I just look towards it as maybe just a bigger reminder of the card that's coming up on Sunday. Um, will it be interesting to see how many people actually stick around to watch this one at ten o'clock on a Friday night? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. The fact that we we will at least have a two-week, at minimum, experiment of the Dynamite on a Friday night at 10. And if how how mobile that AEW audience is, which has proven like they, they have found the show in past uh, times when they have been bounced around on the TNT schedule. And this will be the, at least the start of the Rampage time slot in August before they move. 
I, I, I do like this week. I don't really feel the buzz for it. Nonetheless, I feel people will. I mean, the diehards at least will, will watch. I mean, it's the next week that I'm actually really interested in because it's coming off a of double or nothing. And Tony Khan has kind of, you know, hinted at big surprises and um, a, the a beginning of a new era for AEW, starting with double or nothing and then extending to the dynamite right afterwards. So um, I have actually bigger anticipation for next week, especially coming off of whatever we might see at double or nothing. Do you want to take a quick look at the pay-per-view card? Sure. So main event, well, I will assume main event is Stadium Stampede with the Pinnacle taking on the Inner Circle. I think this should close the show. I think so too, especially now that we know that there are going to be live elements um, attached to the to the match. It is the one with the highest profile. I think it's the one with the highest level of anticipation as well. So yes. I think they should have made... That very clear on television, the live elements. I'll, I'll tell you, as someone, like, if I was someone that was contemplating going to this show, Stadium Stampede is an at-home viewing experience. That's what I was exposed to last year. Whereas um, Blood and Guts, I think that would be more of a, a live event draw. So the fact that there are live elements, like, I would have been making that as clear as they were with Sting wrestling in front of live fans. Because... You only have one stadium stampede to go on, and in its very title, it's not going to be in the arena. So I think you have to make that very clear on television because I could see a lot of people looking at this is the main event of the show. It's probably going 30 to 40 minutes. I would rather enjoy this on pay-per-view rather than watching it on a screen inside of Daly's Place. So we will see if they make that um, a key part tonight on the show, but it's also a little late at this point, Friday night, but the re- it, w- it was reported as such. Um in terms of the outcome, uh, I I can see the idea of, you know, you could go with like the inner circle gets their big revenge on the pinnacle. I could also see this being the point that the inner circle, like, get off the stage while they're still clapping, while this group is still hot. You got the little baby face run out of them, which sometimes you do at the tail end of a long heel faction. And, and then they go, they're forced to go their separate ways. That would, it would not surprise me that this show closes off with like, it's the era of the pinnacle. That booking, I think would be pretty bold, you know? I mean, the inner circle, I would say are still incredibly hot. Maybe you can argue the hottest that they have ever been, especially now as a baby. Huge huge merchandise sellers. Like there's plenty of arguments against it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But you know, to, to disband them right now, uh, would, would be a bold move that you wouldn't typically expect from a wrestling promotion. However, uh, I agree that they'd be perfectly fine. Uh, each member on its own. Um, you know, Jericho, of course, would still have that feud going on with MJF, and people like Sammy and, you know, Pow- Proud and Powerful are pr- definitely at this point more than ready to kind of like, you know, leave the nest and fly on their own. However, I still feel like there is enough life in this pinnacle and inner circle feud to keep them together uh, and to build to a rubber match between the two factions throughout the summer. So I'm going to say inner circle for this one. If this was any other company. <laughs> I would wait for next week. They lose. They come out and Jericho announces, all right, after two matches, the five of us are never going to team together in a match ever again. But we're still friends. We're still going to like come out together and stuff. Because <laughs> it just says they can't team forever. Yeah. Or, or they can't team uh, together on Dynamite. <laughs> he never said anything about Rampage. Yeah, like how can you, can, can you enforce, like they can't be friends either. They can't be on uh, on a in a segment together on dynamite, like that's, you got to really enforce that. The, the inner square. Well, 
Uh, Kenny Omega. I don't know. I have nothing. Kenny Omega, Orange Cassidy, and Pac for the AEW Championship. I think this thing's going to be utterly spectacular. I'm really looking forward to this match itself. Um, I don't think there's... Have we seen a triple threat yet in AEW? Not for the championship. Yeah. So I'm really curious to see the style of match that these three will have. I think it'll like the three performers themselves will be spectacular. And to see, I think seeing simply being able to see Orange Cassidy in there with Kenny Omega will offer something really interesting because we know Kenny has a very humorous side to him. And uh, to see the amount of creativity he might be able to have with a character like Orange Cassidy will be really fascinating. Um, but as far as the outcome, I can't, I can say that's probably like the, the element of this match that for me is probably the weakest. There seems to be, in my opinion, no tease whatsoever of either of the other two have, uh, being able to take the belt off of Kenny. So that takes a big element out of it. But if they can get that near fall, I will say, you know, that the match will have been successful. Yeah, you have the prior matches with Kenny Omega and Pac at All Out in 2019. And then the that great Ironman match that they did on Dynamite over or just around a year ago. I could see Omega beating Pac in the match and you still do an Omega Orange Cassidy match on television uh, at at some point. Because I, I would love to see that singles match as well. But I, I think this is going to be an incredible, incredible match uh, with the three. Tag team title match, uh, John Moxley and Eddie Kingston challenging the Young Bucks. Any chance of a title change? Yes, I definitely think so. It would be a great way to establish um, John Moxley and Eddie Kingston as a bona fide team not just you know in contention but also uh, a reigning set of tag team champions to further that relationship along of course before the inevitable turn but i think moxley and kingston are a very hot tandem right now i could definitely see them taking the belt i mean the bucks with the belts is is great there are plenty of people who would contend with them but um you can definitely go either way and, and with the potential of more story to, t- to come um yeah i'm just thinking about potential matchups who are who are next in line I don't have the SCU. rankings in front of me. Yeah, they've they've run through SCU. Um, I mean, you could you could come out of this with, um, you know, I, I would imagine out of Stadium Stampede, you you have to do Santana and Ortiz with FTR. I think they should mm. probably be paired off together. Um, it's kind of going to be. I mean, if if you do the obvious finish, like there is there is the novelty of doing the Bucks against Sting and Darby Allen as a one off somewhere. Interesting. Okay. I think that would be like, if you built that up, I mean, maybe that's not a television match. Maybe they see that as something bigger, but the Bucks Mm -hmm. in there with Sting and the Bucks with Darby Allen, I I kind of like that idea um, just because it would be so wild with with Sting of what he would do with these guys uh, and Darby with the Bucks would be something else. A Sting-Young Bucks match is one that is very difficult for me to picture in my head. I think Um, that's what they want from you. Yeah. Okay, well, I it would be an interesting. They have no shortage of tag teams. It's just it's kind of building people up. There aren't like that obvious team that's that's in waiting, but they they have such a deep tag division. I'm gonna say Moncton Kingston. I have to say I kind of like that idea a bit more. It's a bit fresher, um, and the Bucks, of course, will be more than fine. Um, then we have the women's title match: Hikaru Shida, Britt Baker, one year as champion for Hikaru Shida. I think everyone is expecting a title change in this one, and I I wouldn't disagree with that, even if it's uh, predictable to some. This is a very big, uh, another in a series of them, big matches for Britt Baker. 
I think everybody is looking for this to be the coronation of, of, an, of an amazing evolution in Britt Baker from the time that she finally turned healed up until this point uh, throughout the pandemic, you know, despite being gone for like the beginning portion of it due to injury, like she has been magnificent. She has been the star of the division, even without the belt. Uh, Hikaru Shida has done a very amicable job. Uh, excellent, an excellent job, you know, especially when it comes to in-ring, but they have to me still not been able to figure her out as a character with, um, you know, story and promo. She's largely been an in-ring product and that's great but i think Britt baker is more of a complete package and you have a division you know with a heel champion lead like her uh that i think would be able to greatly benefit so i think i I look i look to this to be a great match from both of them uh and then uh, with the final coronation of Britt baker i love this i'm just reading the lineup off of uh wikipedia miro or dante martin Defending the TNT Championship against Lance Archer. So, uh, Way, I would offer you to break down both potential champions because we're doing this before Dynamite. But let, let's just go out on a limb and assume it'll be Miro versus Lance Archer on Sunday. Well, the, that would be perhaps the boldest move of all. If they had Dante Martin beat Miro on the go-home show before Double or Nothing to go up against Lance Archer defending the TNT Championship. But I respect whoever edits these Wikipedias to, you know, not count Dante Martin out like that. Is Jake uh, Roberts going to have a roll of quarters for Lance Archer to uh, knock out Miro with? <laughs> Boy. Yeah, I don't know. Better watch out backstage. We're, we're, we will get to that right after this. Yeah. Um, you know, Miro has been on fire. Like, seriously. You know, if you have not, for whatever reason, watched Dynamite over the past month, you have missed, like... A complete transformation of Miro from this video game joystick tapping best man bullshit character to uh, perhaps the the guy with the best one-liners in all of professional wrestling. His match with Darby Allen was fucking awesome, and the characters and the promo have been absolutely tremendous. So we're just getting started with this great run. I look forward to this one. I mean, this could possibly be Lance Archer's best match in AEW thus far. You know, two heavyweights who are incredibly mobile. I think you'll get to see Lance Archer do his best babyface stuff in here. But ultimately, it's got to end with Miro continuing this this run. Yeah, you're only scratching the surface. I think this guy, it's been very interesting to watch how this TNT title has been, like the identity it's assumed. Because each champion has had like their own very distinct reign that has given this title like all this all these different uh presentations and you go from Darby Allen to Miro um it's been a very well protected title that has done great things for whoever has held the title like it's been it's it's been done very well and i think that Miro um you're going to get a great run out of him from the it is the it, it is been successful thus far in accomplishing what I think it's been set out to to be what a secondary title should be and that is the showcase title that is the workhorse title you know in Cody's case he was already established but it became a great showcase title for all of his opponents obviously for Brody Lee you could say that and for Darby Allen absolutely it hasn't really been even that long like you know that he's held the belt but he's been so active with it it feels like a long reign and you know we can look for that the same thing with Miro. Cody Rhodes versus Anthony Agogo. In some ways, it's the most interesting match because so little is known of Anthony Agogo of what what he is capable of, and this is this is in concert with a lot of Cody Rhodes pay per view matches that they're almost their own separate island on the pay per view, like it's its own attraction. 
Um, that's what I feel like Cody is on these shows. And this is going to be, you know, we, it, this is going to be another uh, test, but I mean, the people that have come out of, of the factory, um, they've been connecting a lot more than they've been missing. So I think everyone's going into this with that understanding that Anthony Agogo is not going to be a fish out of water here, that he is going to be someone that is going to surprise some. And with Cody, like he has been very, very good at being versatile with, with opponents and has been working hands-on with, with Anthony Agogo. So I'm not going to be stunned at all that we are talking about this as a really great uh, layout and presentation on Sunday. I agree with you. I think it's really rare to see somebody so new receive a pay-per-view match in AEW. Not, I mean, there's there are a lot of people on this roster who have not, who have been like longtime veterans who have not had that singles match on a pay-per-view yet in AEW. So the fact that they're willing to give a prime spot like that to this guy tells me that they're incredibly confident of his abilities. Um, it was interesting hearing Cody talk about a go-go, you know, and, and kind of, Mentioning the fact that he is sort of the first real homegrown AEW talent that, you know, they largely really just trained from scratch here. Uh, so this, I think, will be a big moment, not just for Gogo himself, but, you know, for AEW and, and that Nightmare Factory school or whatever they call it these days. I'm really curious to see how the crowd reacts to this one. Uh, certainly, we've talked plenty about maybe the 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 divided reaction to Cody Rhodes' promo and really his character as a whole coming up until this point where he's promoted as the baby face, but I think coming across as a heel for many people. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it is going to be in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, we also know that he will return with his old non Snoop Dogg theme, which I think is, will do a whole lot in serving that baby face reaction that he might be intending. Uh, so I'm really curious, not just about the match, but, but about the reaction for this one. Does Arn throw in the towel to save Cody? Ooh, interesting. I can certainly see the argument to have a go-go win this. Oh, I definitely think a go-go should win this. Don't you? I, I, I do too. Um, Cody has sold a lot in this program. I guess it, it depends on where you are going with this, but I I do think a go-go should win this. But, I mean, Cody's lost a lot of his big matches too. But he's all he's untouchable at this point. You know, he'll be over no matter what. Well, he'll be he'll be talked about no matter what. I mean, I, I can't necessarily say it'll be a babyface or heel reaction, but you know, I think he could definitely afford the loss. Sting and Darby against uh, Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page. I think this is going to be Sting and Darby's revenge, and they they win this one. I think so too. Um, the result is not even so you know as curious as what Sting looks like in ring without uh, what did they call it non-taped non-edited his first match in front of fans in six years okay they, did, they didn't say non-edited or anything like that <laughs> I, I i don't know all the verbiage that has been used they have pretty much said if you buy a ticket you're gonna see him in person several hundred feet away from you you know i know i'll be cheering for sting uh the unfortunately of course you know the last time we saw him in ring um the few times we've seen him in ring, you know, in the past years in the WWE, I don't think he's looked really good. This is a tag, tag team match situation where you can expect him to be protected. And I think we just hope that, you know, he has a great performance, you know, and that he does his big spots. And I'm actually not completely confident that you might see the result of uh, the babyface necessarily just winning. Because I think the bigger feud coming out of this is Ethan Page versus Darby Allen. Yeah, I've uh, 
I could certainly see like they they've really set the seeds for for that feud to to foster after after this one. Um, I don't know. I I just I see Sting winning here with the with the Deathlock. I what I really want to see is them clear the ring. Darby hits his crazy torpedo tope to the floor, and then the camera just cuts to Sting's reaction and what he's going to do to follow that up. <laughs> that would be funny. Yeah, that'd be great. And then uh, rounding out the card, Brian Cage and Hangman Page, where the real challenge will be the commentary to call that one, and Serena Deeb versus Riho for the NWA Women's Championship on the buy-in, which I I think is going to be great. I think the Serena Deeb matches have really carved out a place that you certainly want to check out. So again, this is another really strong card on Sunday, and it's... It will be also interesting, uh, the time allotment as well, the factor that the fans are going to play on this show and how hot they are. Um, so I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to the show Sunday. Yeah, I can't really say like top top down. It's like the, the, the AEW card that I've been looking forward to the most. I don't even know if it would be like, you know, top 50%. But to me, it, it, it as far as that anticipation goes, it hinges on one thing in that stadium stampede. If they could deliver a quality event um like that matches the caliber of the stadium stampede last year and i'm not necessarily talking about comedy but i'm just talking about entertainment you know if they can deliver the 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 quality of what they did last year i think people will come out of this very satisfied uh but top down i'm sure the the in-ring action will be tremendous throughout here's my one my one thing because we did talk about this earlier about like the one of the big selling features to me on this show uh among several is the fans singing Judas. I think yes. that's a big part. If they start in the stadium and you deny people that song, it's a real cool send-off if the Inner Circle wins the match in the arena and the show goes off the air with the crowd singing at the top of their lungs. That would be a pretty memorable end to this show. The complete opposite of how the last pay-per-view ended. That's a really great idea. I, I love that idea a, a lot. So maybe I'm going to switch. A... Maybe they should go with the inner circle now. Uh, you'll have a lot of those moments, though, you know, between that and Orange Cassidy's entrance now. And um, who else? What's the Wild other thing? Along? Wild thing. Yeah. We also had the Casino Battle uh, Royale. I guess a lot are looking towards Christian or TBA. And I guess TBA, I mean, you can have your pick of who it could be. I'm sure it's going to be an interesting name, who whoever is in there. But I look, I, I would say like the dark horse pick to me is Jungle Boy potentially winning this thing. Sure, yeah, I'm I'm gonna say the TBA, whoever that is, because there are a lot of free agents out there in the professional wrestling world right now. Um, I think Tony Khan has at least hinted that you might see some somebody appear on on this one, if not the the Dynamite afterwards. Um, so. You know, I, I I think there needs to be some big news event beyond just the wrestling on the show. Yeah, for sure. Uh, before we wrap up, let's chat a bit about the latest Dark Side of the Ring. It was our second of two Ultimate Warrior documentaries this week. And this one, I mean, it was half the length of the a- A&E version, which, I mean, that comes with its its struggles. And in this one, you know, the prime interview subject was Sherry Tyree, the first wife of the Ultimate Warrior from 1982 until... 1991 and then we had additional people interviewed I, I thought Jim Cornette and Jim Ross like they came off like they were they were very clear in their negativity towards Warrior but I thought everything they said was completely fair I am not go- like 
though that is their true and honest feelings. And I didn't think it was malicious. It was just, we're not going to just wax poetic about someone when that's not how we felt about them. Eric Bischoff didn't add much to me in, in this one. Um, David Manning, I mean, he's a great interview subject, but it was just so brief about in Texas and out. It was almost like within minutes. Uh, and then you had Jake Roberts. That was, um, I don't know what to make of, of, of Jake Roberts in this one. He told the most, the, the strangest story, which could be a case of him. He's just got his timing all messed up. He explained that he was told he was going to get a run with the Ultimate Warrior. Like, I guess like a whole run when he was champion after SummerSlam, which would have been 1990 when he was holding the title. He then explains this whole scenario of him having to go ask Warrior for permission and pretty much getting lectured and talked down to by Warrior, which led Jake to just hate this individual, and says that he lost out on this house show run when Warrior got suspended. The problem with that timeline is that he held the title at SummerSlam 90. He got suspended after SummerSlam 1991, and it like none of it really connected to me. Mm, right. Yeah, they were so a year when apart. Was, when was Jake supposed to win the belt? I don't know. I don't know if that was his. If his wording was just off. My impression was he wasn't going to get the belt. He was going to get a run with the Warrior and go to all the cities and work on top with Warrior. But I he don't specifically think... mention. You know, I've been waiting like to for a championship run. Did he not say that in the documentary? He did say that. He said a championship run, but I think what he meant was like your championship, like run with the champion at all the lot regardless like okay. i don't think there was a chance they were taking the belt off him for jake the other thing is jake was a baby face in 1990 which is not to say they could have had plans to turn him they desperately needed heels for warrior but again this is one between that and then he tells a story about at the hall of fame in 2014 he had a roll of quarters and was ready to blast the warrior backstage with these roll of quarters so um God bless Jake, but I was taking a lot of what he was saying with, with a grain of salt, and this this felt like some 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 wrestling tall tales from Jake Roberts in this. But um, I, I think my, my biggest criticism of this one would be it's about 25 minutes in. That's when we're addressing the SummerSlam 91 stuff, and for the final 20 minutes, they're talking about all the fallouts with WWF, the many that they had. You had the... All his post WWE stuff, his speeches, his all the people he offended, then the reunion with WWE into his death, all of that in 20 minutes. It's like you're going to miss like key parts of stories because they're trying to get a lot in. And it it just felt to me like it was trying to cover too much. Whereas the first part of it, it seemed to be more about Warrior outside of the ring and him coming up. And I think that Sherry Tyree did kind of give a more humanizing side to Jim Helwig uh, away from pro wrestling. And I, I just thought it, it became a lot to try and get in there in, in the back half of the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, now that we've seen both A&E and Vice documentaries, I have to say I got more out of the A&E documentary in terms of receiving a full in-depth look at this man in and out of the ring. Um, I certainly think 
you know, length played a part in it. But even of the topics covered, I feel like the Vice documentary, I was looking for more of a, you know, um, focused, perhaps perspective on certain stories in the man's life. Instead, I feel we got essentially a condensed version of, I think, what the A&E story did. And that's, you know, sort of almost a beat by beat recap of the career and, you know, the man's exploits in and out of the ring. Um, I thought Sherry was an excellent addition that we did not get from the A&E documentary because she, by all accounts, was the closest person to Warrior throughout his actual, you know, main run throughout the 80s. And she was a great guide throughout that entire thing, uh, you know, able to kind of like give us that, you know, as you said, more human element attached to the man that we might not necessarily have had in the other one. She, I thought was absolutely tremendous. I thought her story of discovering his infidelity was absolutely heartbreaking, but then very uplifting to know that her and warrior managed to stay friends afterwards. And the moment that she described of the last time that they had, you know, talked to each other as he said goodbye and apologized to her when they both decided, Hey, we're both in love with other people. Now best. We don't work out in the same gym together. That I thought was incredibly mature and uplifting. And I thought provided like, you know, a look at this guy who I think has had a reputation for being incredibly temperamental and immature. I have to say, you know, uh, but you know, having a very adult, like, warm moment i would say in his life so i really and comes and comes from someone in tyree that i mean she has no she has no need to paint him in such a positive light and she does i mean she is very open about why they broke up and it was very much on him um and what he was doing on the road but you know shared like the what sounded like a very heartfelt um you know, final moment together. Um, once mm-hmm. they'd each met other people and went their separate ways. So yeah, she she was like to me the the star of, of this this particular documentary. I agree. I was disappointed in the lack of coverage of the controversies in his life. Um, and I can tell you, I certainly didn't expect the A and E documentary to get more into that side of him than Dark Side of the Ring. And perhaps you blame it on the length, but I feel like they had a real opportunity to navigate a lot, a lot of that, a whole lot more. And instead, you know, it it was like they glossed over it so quickly. It was just like, you know, he he had this he was on the outs with the WWE and then he got into he became a right wing uh, speaker, showed you that. And then we went right to the Hall of Fame without any sort of like attempt to criticize the actions or to even like provide a voice to support it and maybe you blame that on the lack of like access of relevant characters but you can certainly say i'll certainly say the A&E documentary did a whole lot more in at least diving deep into some of those issues um this i found it interesting how both documentaries seem to highlight his real problem with insecurity and need for a father figure and how both of them seem to like hint that it was the Vince McMahon relationship that he really relied upon. So at least coming out of like both documentaries, that seems something of a universal truth. You, you would you know think if you're taking just simply these two documentaries for for a representative. But um, you know, again, where like the A and E doc, I would say like has a leg up is the fact that we actually get to hear from Vince. You know, one of the principal characters involved in that whole relationship. The, you know, they don't get into the steroid stuff at all. Um, and, you know, even the SummerSlam scenario, like it was nice to have Jake's the supplement of like Jake being there. But I can't really say it did much more to lay it out than like the, the A&E documentary did. 
I, I thought like the Jake stuff to me, it was like that kind of was like the biggest indication. Like there, like you just had like a lack of people to speak to and therefore a story like Jake's, like if I was, I don't know if you can do an ultimate warrior documentary in 42 minutes. Like it's just, I don't think it's possible. And if you are doing it, I think to your point, I think like the early days and the stuff with Sherry Tyree, very strong first half. And I think the second half, especially when you have a lot less talking heads, you go to that footage of Warrior and you really dive into post wrestling and where this guy fell off. And you kind of your your conclusion in those final few minutes is how does that shape this man's legacy? We have presented like the wrestling side and now you have People that grew up where he was a part of their childhood, which is going to be remembered fondly, juxtaposed with this individual who said some heinous, heinous things and shared some very troubling beliefs. And and that is the Ultimate Warrior's legacy. And to paint him as a hero or a villain is your prerogative. But, you know, not everyone is assigned hero status. That should be in limited supply in this world. And it to me, does not check the boxes as someone deserving of such. But that's that's kind of the warrior story of how best you can condense it. But I think they had a, a lot, uh, they had very few people to go into it. And then you get someone who's a captivating speaker and Jake, and he shares a story like that. And we, we spend this time talking about, you know, you, you know, the Jake stuff that to me really didn't add too much. I ultimately felt like this Dark Side of the Ring episode was a nice supplement to the A&E documentary, which I felt, you know, now that we've seen them both to be the more comprehensive look at the ultimate warrior. Um, but together, you know, I think they're, they're both worthy watches um, in, in coupling. I, w- I would really like the, 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 again, the stuff with Sherry Tyree, I think would be, you know, it, it definitely does present like, uh, like a different aspect to him and kind of, it was interesting to see like w- with Jim Helwig is the fact that, um, you know, they don't get into it in the documentary, but, you know, he eventually has a relationship with, with Melanie Pillman. And it led to, you know, um, later when Melanie Pillman got together with Brian Pillman, there was great dislike between Warrior and Pillman. But after seeing, you know, the recent Pillman documentary, like these two had an interesting connection in that they had a history of of health problems in the, in their family with, with Brian's uh, father dying young warriors, father dying young. And these both seemed like they were individuals that had that in the back of their mind that we don't know how long we're going to be around. And we're in this constant race to, you know, make sure that they can get to a certain point in their lives. And, you know, warrior it's described in here, like he wanted to become something and become this big star, but you've also got that knowledge in the back of your head. And then of course he dies at the age of 54. Yeah. That's a really fascinating maybe connection Uh, where they definitely probably didn't have too much to share is perhaps their reverence for wrestling and, you know, their willingness to study wrestling. And that was something that in this documentary, they did not shy away from discussing. I thought Jim Cornette had (laughs) just a hell of a great line when he said something to the effect of like, you know, you have a guy who didn't care about getting better at wrestling, but he had the look. And in the 80s, there was one place for somebody like that to work in the industry, the <laughs> WWF. <laughs> that was great. I, I thought Jim Ross said some of the great line. Like, I'm sure people out there in TV land are asking, what the fuck is distrucity? <laughs> distrucity. It was, there's a great section on the 
definition of distrusity, the truth between um what was it? Destruction the, and the creating of a truce between one's destiny and one's reality. <laughs> yes. <amazing>. Destrucity. <laughs> So anyway, uh, that that is the latest uh, dark side of the ring. We have two more, two more to go. Oh, that's it! Wow, and they have two left this season. And this weekend is the Mick Foley one on Annie. Two more until the break, and then uh, the second half. Of that's the right. Season. Yeah, yeah. Dark Side will come back with a with a whole series uh, or the, the next half of this season. Annie, we've got Mick Foley this weekend and Bret Hart the following weekend. Sorry. So what's um what's Dark Side next week? Do you know? Oh God! They promoted it. Is next week um, Dynamite Kid? No, next week is Grizzly Smith. Next week okay. is that. Oh, that's going to be a very dark one. And then the then they've got um, Tom Billington the following week. Cool. Looking forward to them. All right, that's going to uh, wrap up a man a lengthy post news update. Can you imagine if we had spent uh, this hour tonight, dude? We'd be up until five a.m. I think well, I've got to wake up at seven. So that. That's a good thing. So tonight, we're back. Midnight Eastern. Rewind at Dine Down. Review of Dynamite. Review of SmackDown. Your calls. Looking forward to it. All Post Wrestling Cafe members will have access. And we also have our post-movie review up now for members of the cafe. Our review of The Dissident uh, profiling the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in October of 2018. Wayne and I uh, went through the documentary and we're hoping to have director Brian Fogel on the program next week. If you have any interest in the topic, you know, through maybe your um, learning about it just through the media, or if you have any interest in perhaps, you know, any of our discussions about Saudi Arabia and their relationship with the WWE, like this is uh, an excellent summation of the entire story about um, a lot of the attempts at from Saudi Arabia to control narrative um, through cyber warfare um it's a fascinating documentary and next tuesday we'll actually hopefully get a chance to speak to director brian fogel about it so this is your chance this weekend to get caught up i also wanted to promote our friends at the british wrestling experience uh martin and andrew recently did a review of beyond the mat the perhaps the wrestling documentary of them all john uh but they didn't just do this one alone with the, the each of them they also did it with Rev- Revolution Pro Wrestling owner Andy Quilden, who has quite the uh, experience with the film himself in influencing his own career path, and as well, he'll give quite a few updates about Rev Pro as well. So, I encourage you guys to check that out on the British Wrestling Experience feed. And we'll speak with you tonight. Thanks for checking out this post news update.